Namaskaram. Um, first of all, uh, I apologize, but this uh, this time I'm not doing another verse of uh, Akshram. I, the thing is, I don't want to rush these the verses of Akshram because they're extremely deep in meaning. And I want to do justice to each one, which means I need to have sufficient time to prepare for it. I need to think deeply about the verse. Um, and what I, as as an aid to thinking about it, I usually write, an, I've been writing articles, um, but I need time to do so. And there are so many demands on my time, but I, it's, it meant other work, other things that I needed to do were suffering. So I've decided, at least for the time being, to cut to try to do just one verse a month. And maybe after a few months, if I've if I'm under less pressure of other work, then some some months I may be able to do two, some months only one. So I just want to be a little bit more flexible about that. Um so instead of that, I thought that we could uh, because there always seem to be abundant questions, we could make it as a question and answer session. There are many uh, comments that uh, are written on my blog uh, asking questions. Um, occasionally, I reply to such comments if I can do so within a in in a relatively short space. But many of the questions are questions that are much easier to reply orally but in writing um so i thought i would take this opportunity to on the when in the weeks in the meetings when i i don't have an, a verse of action ready to talk about i would start off with at least one um answering one of the comments on my blog and then open open it for whatever questions come um but Shalini says there's already a question, so even that is not necessary. But it is an opportunity to deal with um, some of the more important questions that I've been asked on the blog. So the, the question that I've selected today, it's actually it was one comment, but it's a series of questions, and it's about the most important topic of all, the practice of self-investigation. So I thought I would um, answer this question today, and then whatever questions uh, anyone wants to ask, I, I can then answer. Um, but this is a comment that was written on the 7th of January on the video of that is um, on the 31st of December. We have uh, the festive uh, satsang. Um, and I spoke briefly at, uh, there about how to investigate who am I. So in that connection, someone a week later, someone asked this, uh, this question or this series of questions. Um, so this is what I will start by answering. Um, the comment starts, I have a question that I need clarifying. When we do self-inquiry and ask who am I, it seems clear to me that the I is just a thought. Um, <clears throat> this, this is the first sentence. There, there are many questions, but I'll deal with sentence by sentence. Firstly, when we do self-inquiry in, in, or self-investigation, it, it is not necessary to ask who am I. 
That is, sometimes if we find it helpful to turn our attention back to ourselves, there's no wrong in asking who am I, but merely asking who am I is not self-investigation. Selfie, that, that is, ask, Bhagavan didn't, uh, Bhagavan's teaching is not to ask who am I, but to investigate who am I. Um, one analogy I sometimes give is if you're given a book and told to investigate what's written in it, you don't sit there asking yourself what is written in this book. You open the book and look inside and read what's written there. Um, so when Bhagavan says investigate who am I, he doesn't mean to ask who am I, he means to invest, to look deep within ourselves to see what we actually are. That is our aim. When we are investigating ourselves, we are uh, attending to ourselves or looking at ourselves. Obviously, not literally looking at ourselves, metaphorically looking at ourselves, attending to ourselves in order to see what we actually are. That is what is meant by self investigation. Uh, in Nana, in the 16th paragraph, Bhagavan gives a very clear definition of what is self investigation. What he says there is Sada Kalamum, Manate, Atma Vilve Kutan, Atma Vicharam. And what that means is, uh, sadakalamu means always. Uh, manate is the mind. It's a, that's an accusative case form of the mind. Uh, uh, atma bill means uh, in or on oneself. Vaitiripatiku uh, means placing or or fixing. So what he's saying is fixing the mind, always fixing the mind on oneself. What does it mean to fix your mind on something? Often, I mean, even in ordinary language, we talk about fixing your mind on a certain thing. It means attending. So fixing the mind means fixing our attention on ourselves. That for to that alone is the name Atmavichara. Does the name Atmavichara refer? So Atmavichara is nothing but fixing our attention on ourselves in order to see what we actually are. That is, we are looking at ourselves, observing ourselves, attending to ourselves in order to see what we actually are. This is self-investigation or atmavichara or self-inquiry as it's also. The trouble with the word self-inquiry, inquiry can, can mean investigate. It can also mean to ask. So that's why it's a better translation of Atmavichara, better than self-inquiry, is self-investigation, because that uh, it has less of an implication of asking questions. But Bhagavan doesn't want us merely to ask, uh, to whom did this thought of, uh, appear to me? Who am I? That is not what he means. He means we need to investigate. So when he says, for example, we should investigate to whom thoughts appear or to whom anything appears, he doesn't mean we ask the question, but to whom do the thoughts appear? They obviously appear only to us, to me. So investigating to whom means investigating ourself, the one to whom all the thoughts appear. Um, so this person wrote, when I do self-inquiry and ask who am I, asking who am I is not necessary. I mean, there's no wrong in asking who am I, but we shouldn't take asking who am I to be the investigation. It, asking who am I is useful to the extent to which it helps us to turn our attention back towards ourselves, and only to that extent. Um, 
and he says, it seems clear to me, but the I is just a thought. The I is never just a thought. That is, ego, I as ego, is a thought, but not just a thought. Because the reason Bhagavan referred to, often described ego as, in English books, it's usually put as the I thought. In Sanskrit, the term is uh, ahambriti, but Bhagavan uh, generally didn't speak in Sanskrit. Sometimes he would use Sanskrit terms, particularly if talking to people who didn't know Tamil, but uh, the term he used in Tamil is nananam ninevu. That means the thought called I. So why does, and he very clearly uh, says in Nana, in the eighth paragraph, uh, he refers to, um, he says something to the effect of all the thoughts that appear in mind, the thought called I alone is the first thought, aduve ahankaram, that alone is ego. So what Bhagavan refers to as the thought called I is ego. And ego is a thought, but it's not just a thought, because as he explains, for example, in verse 24 of Uludunapadu, ego is a mixture of uh, well, what, what he says in verse 24 of Uludhanapadu is, uh, he begins by saying, Jado nenadu. That means the insentient body does not say I. And what he means by body is not just the physical form of the body, he means all the five sheaths. The five sheaths are the body, the life that, um, that animates the body, and the mind, intellect, and will that function within the body. So all these, these collectively, this bundle of five sheaths, are what he refers to as body. Because in an earlier verse of Uludunapadu, he stated explicitly, in verse 5, he said, Udul pancha koza uru. The body is a form composed of five sheaths. Why does he say that? Because we never... When we rise as ego, we always experience ourselves as I am this body. But the body we experience as, uh, as I is never a dead body. It's always a living body. So it's not just the physical form, it's the life also. Life means the prana. And we never experience a sleeping body as I. It's always a body that seems to be awake. Even in dream, the body that we identify as ourselves seems to be awake. So when it's, the body is awake, that means the mind, the intellect, and the will are functioning within it. So that's why in the second sentence of verse 5, he says, therefore, all five are included in the term body. So we, whenever we experience any of these five sheaths, we experience all of them, and we experience them collectively as ourselves. So when Bhagavan talks about body, he's not just talking about the, the physical form, uh, but he's talking about the, 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 the entire bundle of five sheaves. So in verse 24, he says, the, uh, the jada udal, the, the insentient body, does not say I. What he means by saying it does not say I, that's a metaphorical way of saying it's not aware of itself as I. Why is it not aware of itself as I? Because it's jada. Jada means it, it has no awareness. It's devoid of awareness. That is, this body is not aware. The prana, the life, the, the breathing, and all the other physiological functions are not aware. All the perceptions, memories, 
um, thoughts, feelings, and so on that make up the mind are not aware. The intellect, all the all the processes that uh, make up the intellect, the the, uh, uh, um, the discernment, discrimination, uh, judgment, reasoning, and so on, these are not aware. They they these are all just uh, functions. And the, the will is made up of vasanas. Vasanas are just inclination. The inclinations are not aware. What is aware of all these five sheaths as I is ego. So it is not the it is not any of the five sheaths that are aware. It's ego that is aware of itself as I am this bundle of five sheaths. Um, so that's why Bhagavan says the the, body, the insentient body does not say I. The body, no, none of the five sheaths are aware of them. They're not aware of anything. So how could they be aware of themselves as I? Um, then in the second sentence, he says, Satchit Udiyadu. Satchit Udiyadu means, Satchit is, uh, is um, literally means existence awareness. Sat is existence or being, and uh, chit is awareness or consciousness. So sat chit is what we actually are, our own reality. That is what we, what what actually exists is only awareness. So a pure awareness is both sat and chit. It is sat because it is what exists, and it is chit because it is what is aware. So satchit refers to pure being and pure awareness, which are one and the same thing. So he says satchit udiyadu. That means satchit does not rise. In other words, it doesn't appear and disappear because it is what always is. It always remains as it is. It's immutable. It doesn't undergo any change whatsoever. So on the one hand, we've got the body, which is not aware of itself as I. On the other hand, we've got satchit, which does not rise. But then he says in the third sentence, in between, one thing, I, rises as the extent of a body. Because it rises, it's not satchit. And because it's I, in other words, because it's, a, it's, an, it's aware of itself as I, it is not the body. So it is neither the body nor satchit, but it borrows the properties of both. Because it rises as the extent of a body, that means it rises and I am this body, so it partakes of some of the qualities of the body, meaning some qualities of the five sheaths, and it also partakes of the quality of satchit, because satchit alone is what is really aware. So it borrows its existence and its awareness from satchit, and it borrows its form from a body. But it is neither the body nor is it satchit, because the body is not aware of itself as I, Whereas this I that rises is aware of itself as I, and uh, it is not satchit because it rises, but where this rises. Then he goes on to say, this is chit jadagranti. Chit jadagranti means, chit means awareness. In this context, it means pure awareness. Uh, jada means what is not aware. In this context, it refers to the body. And granti means a not. So, this I that rises is the, is a knot formed by the entanglement of chit and jada. Of course, chit never actually gets entangled, but from the perspective of ego, uh, chit 
that is, we are, we we've now risen as ego, so we are a, we are a form of awareness. But this awareness seems to be entangled with the body. We 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 are not able to separate ourselves from this body. That's why it's called chit jada granti. Chit is real, jada is unreal. So it's a, it's a combination of what is real and what is unreal. This is what Bhagavan calls the I thought. This is ego. Ego is a thought because it is not, it, because it rises and subsides, it's just a thought. Oh, the only thing that is not a thought is Satchit, because Satchit is what is, is the underlying reality. So ego is a thought because it rises and subsides. But it it is it has an element of reality in it because it's it's aware of itself as I. So it is true to say that ego is a thought, but it is wrong to say that it is just a thought. It is a thought, but it's a thought unlike all other thoughts, because all other thoughts are jada. They're not aware of their own existence. Whereas ego is the only thought that is aware of its own existence. So e what we now experience as I is ego, this adjunct mixed awareness. Oh, I'll just finish explaining about verse 24. What he says is, this is chitjanagranti bandham. Bandham means bondage. Why is it bondage? Because we, it binds us to this, the limitations of this body. Uh, so this is the bondage from which we need, we, we are seeking liberation. By, liberation is nothing but the separation of ourselves from this false identification, I am this body. Uh, so it's bandham, jivan. Jivan means the soul or the, the individual uh, individuality, we can say individuality or soul. Uh, so that is nothing but this false I that rises at the extent of a body, as I am this body. Um, uh, jivan nupame. Nupame means subtle body. Um, the term subtle body is used in different sense in different contexts. In some contexts, the term subtle body refers to three of the five sheaves. That is not what, the sense in which Bhagavan is using it here. He, here he says that um, because it, they, they, this, word, this term subtle body is used in different sense in different contexts. He said this ego is subtle body. That is, it's often said that when the gross body dies, what transmigrates, what go, goes to another body is the subtle body. But Bhagavan is clarifying here that what he called the subtle body in such a context is just ego. Um, and it... Bhagavan also clarified that it's not a matter of transmigration, of, of going from one body to another, when, when, when this, our whole life is just a dream. When the dream comes to an end, the dreamer subsides back in sleep. When the dreamer rises again, it starts a new dream. So each life is just a dream. So it's not going from one body to another. Ego is what projects the body and takes it to be I. Um, so he says it is it is chitcharagranti bandham bondage um, jiva uh, the subtle body ahande ahande means ego um, uh, uh, ichamsara that means this samsara that is samsara is nothing but ego that is the whole of this vast samsara 
all boils down to ego because it's only in the view of ego but but samsara seems to exist so samsara has no existence independent of ego so what samsara essentially is is only ego and finally he says manam mind the term mind we have to be careful about because it's used in different sense in different contexts but when we talk about the mind as the subject as what knows that is ego that is this eye that rises between so this is this is what bhagavan means when he when he refers to ego as the thought called i because it's a it's a a combination of what is real namely satchit and what is unreal namely this body whatever is unreal is just a thought so as as a combination of the reality and the thought it is just a thought uh well it it is it is a thought but we shouldn't say just a thought because it has that element of satchit in it it's got that it, it it's got that element of awareness in it that's what distinguishes the thought called i from all other thoughts and the reason bhagavan says only after the only after the thought called i but this thought called i is the first thought and only after it rises do other thoughts rise the reason is very simple because all other thoughts exist only in the view of ego because other thoughts are judda they they have no awareness of their own so in whose view do the thoughts seem to exist only in the view of ego so ego is a thought but a thought unlike all other thoughts because it's got that essential element of uh, awareness in it um but it is not awareness in its pure form it's awareness in adjunct bound form so it, pure awareness is aware of itself as just i am whereas ego as ego we're aware of ourselves as i am this body that is the distinction it's not the very two eyes the, the real eye and the false eye there's only one eye when that one eye remains in its pure condition that is such it when it, it mixes and when it is conflated with adjuncts as i am this body that is ego um then the next question this person asks is is this what ramana means when he speaks of the i thought um yeah what bhagavan means when he speaks of the i thought is is ego um but as i said ego is not just a thought it is a thought but it's it's a thought unlike any other thought then the next question is then do you take or hold your attention on that i thought yes um some people ask whether the eye we should attend to when we are investigating ourselves whether it is um ego the thought called i or our real nature that's a question that is often asked and when bhagavan was asked such question he said it's sufficient just to attend to ego why did bhagavan say like that because there are not actually there's only one eye uh the, the relationship if you want to call it that um between um between i the pure eye and ego the impure eye is like the relationship between the 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 um the rope and the snake there's actually only one thing there that is the rope but when we see it as a snake we're seeing it as something other than what it actually is 
exactly the same is the case with ego. What actually, what ego actually is, is the pure eye. But it experiences itself as something other than the pure I. Instead of experiencing itself as I alone, it experiences itself as I am this body. So as ego, we uh, so ego is not another is not a second I. So if you if you see a, a, a rope and mistake it to be a snake. How can you get rid of that snake? The only way to get rid of the snake is to look at it very carefully. If you look at it very carefully, what do you see? Oh, it's not a snake, it's just a rope. So uh, what you were looking at all along was only a rope, but it seemed to you to be a snake. But when you look at it carefully enough, you recognize it's a rope. Likewise with ego. So long as we don't look at ourselves carefully enough, we seem to be ego. And generally, we're not looking at ourselves at all. We're so eager looking, looking at other things, attending to things other than ourselves. It's only when we attend to things other than ourselves that we seem to be ego. When we, the more we attend to ourselves, the more ego subsides, and we begin to become aware of ourselves as the underlying pure awareness. I am alone. In other words, we now our identification is I am this body. The deeper we go within, the more we begin to recognize that what we actually are is I alone. This is what Bhagavan meant by the term I am I. But unfortunately, the term I am I is usually translated in English as I hyphen I, because in Tamil and Sanskrit and such languages, if you want to say, um, uh, this is a this is a mouse. You just say this mouse. Uh, is is understood. Uh, so if you want to say, um, for instance, in Tamil, nanivudal uh, 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 means I this body. It implies. I mean, what is understood by saying that is I am this body. Um, if you say, for example, Shiva hum, that means Shiva I. But we don't write it as Shiva hyphen I, we say Shiva is I, or I am Shiva. Uh, so it is, it, 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 this is a feature of both Sanskrit and Tamil and also many other languages. It's, it's not necessary to uh, uh, express the copula because it's understood. The copula means the verb to be, which identifies one A as B, one thing as another. So Bhagavan often talks about I am I, because I am, he, and he used to refer to that I am I as Spurana. Spurana means a clarity, a fresh clarity of self-awareness. So now we are aware of ourselves as I in this body, but the more we attend to ourselves, the more clear it becomes to us, but what we actually are is not any such adjunct. We, what, what I actually am is I am alone, nothing other than that. So I am I. Um, uh, so, uh, yes, uh, the practice of self-investigation is just to hold our attention on I. Whether you say you're holding your attention on the I thought, namely ego, or on the pure I am, it, it, it really doesn't matter. because Obviously, it's not the pure I am, because when we experience ourselves as the pure I am, um, Ego will thereby be destroyed, but it, it, but 
we shouldn't be, it's better not to think of it in terms of is it ego or is it, uh, um, uh, or, or is or is it our real nature? Because it's like if if Bhagavan tells us look carefully at the uh, look look carefully at it. If we say which it do you want me to look at? Do you want me to look at the snake or at the rope? He'll say look at the snake because you take it to be a snake. But if you look at the snake, you see it's only a rope. So there's only one eye, and we our aim is to attend to the to that which is shining within us as I. Let it be called ego or let it be called our real nature. It really doesn't matter. The difference is it's, there's only one eye. When it's mixed and conflated with adjuncts, it's called ego or the thought called I. When it remains in its pure condition, it's called Atmasarupa, the real nature of ourself. Um, then the person goes on to say, if you do it, it seems to me that the I thought disappears and there's no thing for a while until thoughts start to arise. Um, if we take the early part of a sentence, it seems to me that the I thought disappears. Who is this me to whom it seems to disappear? The me to whom the I thought appears is, is only the I thought itself. So, so long as there's a me to see what it imagines to be the disappearance of the I thought, that me who is seeing that, or who is imagining some disappearance, is itself the I thought. The disappearance of I thought is what we experience every day when we fall asleep. But then there's not an I, there's not, there's not a me remaining there saying, it seems to me the I, I thought has disappeared. That is, it's only in the view of the I thought but the I thought seems to exist. So when when the I thought or ego subsides in sleep, there's no one remaining to say, oh, the ego, the ego has disappeared. Because what remains in sleep is the pure I am. And in the clear view of the pure I am, there's never any such thing as ego or I thought or world or anything. It alone exists. Um, so, uh, it's it's uh, useful to remember here what Bhagavan says in verse 2 of Arunacha Ashtakam. What he says at the beginning of this verse is, in the first sentence he says, Kandavan Evan Ena Karutinul Nada Kandavan Indrida Nindradu Kandain. What that means is, when there's no clear subject here, but it implies when the seer, when the seer investigated within the mind who the seer is, the seer is obviously ego, the thought called I. So when he investigates within the mind to see who it is, Kandavan Indrida Nindradu Kandain. I saw what remained when he, when the seer became non-existent. He doesn't say. I saw the disappearance of um, of of Basia. What he says is, I saw what remained when Basia disappeared, when Basia became non-existent. Because we can never see the disappearance of ego, because ego seems to exist 
only in the view of ego. So when ego when ego ceases to exist, there's no one to to say I have I have seen it disappear. So Bhagavan doesn't say he saw it disappear. He said he saw what remained when it had disappeared. In other words, what, when we look deep within ourselves, we don't see the I thought disappearing. We just see what remains. If you look carefully at the, at the snake, as you, if you look at it carefully enough, you see what remains when the snake disappears. In other words, you see the rope. You don't actually see the snake disappearing. You just see, oh, it's a rope. That... We can describe it as the uh, snake disappearing, but you don't actually see the snake disappearing. What seemed to be a snake, you recognize it's just a rope. Nothing has actually changed at all. It's just a change. It's a, it's a, it's a clear recognition. So when we look at ego carefully enough, we see what remains when it ceases to exist. In other words, what its underlying reality is. Then he goes on to say in the next verse, Kandavan Indrida uh, Karutara Ville. The mind does not rise to say, I saw. That is, even though he said in that first sentence, I saw what remains, even that's not a perfect way of saying it because there's no, there's no I there to say, there's no I as ego there to say, I saw. What remains is alone what sees. And what it sees is what it always sees, which is namely, namely itself. So he said, the mind does not rise to say, I saw. Kandilan indrida karutera maren. So in what way could the mind rise to say, I did not see? That is it. When we know ourselves as we actually are, there's there's no ego remaining to say, I have known myself, and there's no ego remaining to say, I have not known myself. Both, uh, as he says in Uludhunapta in verse 33, I think, um, but to say, I have known myself or I have not known myself, both are equally ridiculous, both are ground for ridicule, because there are not two eyes, one eye to know the other eye. Um, so anyway, but we, we cannot actually see the I thought disappear. And we, our aim is not to see the I thought dis disappear. What we are trying to see is the underlying reality of the I thought. If we see the underlying reality, yes, the I thought obviously will disappear. That is when you see the, when you, when you recognize the rope, it's a rope, the snake disappears, but you it, it's you're not looking for the disappearance of the of the snake. You're looking for what underlies the snake. So, and nothing actually disappears there because what previously appeared to be a, a snake is recognized to be a rope. So um, to say I it, the, the I thought I, it seems to me that the I thought disappears. The very fact that we say it seems to me that me to whom it seems is itself the I thought. So the I thought hasn't disappeared. That is, other, when we, to the extent to which we attend to ourselves, to that extent do other thoughts subside. But the I thought will disappear only when we look at ourselves so keenly, but we see what we actually are. When we see what we actually are, Ego can never see, 
ego has to try to see what it actually is, but ego can never see what it actually is, because as soon as we, as ego, see ourselves as we actually are, we cease to be ego and remain as we actually are. Because what can what can know pure awareness is only what we actually are is pure awareness. What can know pure awareness is only pure awareness. So we can know pure awareness only by being pure awareness. So so long as we remain as ego, we cannot know we cannot know ourselves as pure awareness. As soon as we know ourselves as pure awareness, we cease to be ego and remain as pure awareness. Um, so, uh, until then, to the extent to which we attend to ourselves, other thoughts will disappear. But, but I thought disappears completely only in two types of states, in manolea, which is a temporary dissolution of the mind, uh, that we experience every day in sleep, and the other is manonasa, which is the permanent dissolution of mind. The permanent dissolution of mind is brought about only by self-investigation. That is only by looking at ourselves so keenly that we see what we actually are. In other words, only by experiencing ourselves as pure awareness, and we can experience ourselves as pure awareness only by being pure awareness. That's why Bhagavan says in verse 26 of Upadesh Undia, uh, Tanai iritale tanai aridalam. Being oneself alone is knowing oneself. In that context, tan oneself means our real nature. So we can we can know our real nature, which is pure awareness, only by being that. And we can be that only by attending to ourselves so keenly, but all other thoughts disappear. When all other thoughts disappear, then only will the ego disappear, but ego will disappear because we see ourselves as we actually are. Um, so, so, as I say, when this person asks, it seems to me that the I thought disappeared, the very fact that he says it seems to me is clear that the me is still there. That me is itself the I thought. So the I thought hasn't disappeared. What has disappeared is maybe the other thoughts have have uh, have diminished to a great extent because of the attention being on I, but they haven't yet diminished sufficiently. And then he says, and there is no thing for a while until thoughts start to rise again. Even to say there is no thing, who is it who says there's no thing? When we wake up from sleep, for example, we may say, oh, I wasn't aware of anything in sleep. But while we're asleep, do we think, I, I'm not aware of anything? No. All we know in sleep is I am, nothing other than I am. So we, 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 uh, we, uh, it's only from the perspective of ego in waking a dream that sleep seems to be a state of absence of knowledge. When we are actually in sleep, what is shiny is only our real nature as the pure I am. So, um, and in the view of pure I am, there's no such thing as no thing, because there, no, there aren't any things in the first place to say there's no thing. The only thing that actually exists is that pure awareness that we actually are. As Bhagavan says in the seventh paragraph of Nana, Yatatamai Ulludu Apmasarupa Mondre. What actually exists is only Apmasarupa. Apmasarupa means the real nature of ourself. And the real nature of ourself is pure awareness, such it. Um, 
So to the extent to which we attend to ourselves, to that extent do thoughts disappear. So in the view of the residual ego, it may seem, oh, there's nothing, because everything, everything has subsided, not completely, but to a great extent, everything else has diminished. So it may seem to be a state of nothingness, but so long as it seems to us to be a nothingness, ego is still there to see that nothingness. When we only when ego dissolves completely does the idea of nothingness along dissolve along with it, um, because what then remains is the only thing, namely the pure awareness that we actually are, which is not a thing like other things. It's not not it's not an object or phenomenon. It's the underlying reality. Um, then the person goes on to say, however, that just seems to be a peaceful state. And if your eyes are closed, darkness. A peaceful state is something experienced by ego. Darkness is something experienced by ego. Eyes that are closed are something experienced by ego. All the, the ego, the thought called I, is still present in that state. It may be a peaceful state because to the extent to which we attend to ourselves, other thoughts disappear. When other thoughts disappear, not completely, but to, to the extent to which they disappear, to that extent do we experience the uh, underlying peace, which is our own real nature. But that peace seems, so long as we rise as ego, that peace seems to come and go. Sometimes we experience it, sometimes we don't. Anything that comes and goes is not the reality. So we have to go deeper and deeper within. Um, we shouldn't be satisfied with just a peaceful state. In one of his works, I think in Aparokshanubhuti or some such work of Adi Shankara, one of the things he warns against in meditation is, um, is peace or quiescence, because it's very easy to slip into a state of manolaya where there's a, it's a very peaceful, calm state, very pleasant state, but that is not our aim. Because in, so long as we're in Manolea, we can't make any progress. It's only in the waking and dreaming state that we can uh, attend to ourselves more and more keenly. So our aim is not just to experience a peaceful state. Our aim, we have one aim and one aim alone, to know who am I. So we must continue attending to ourselves, whether we're in a peaceful state or in an agitated state, we exist. It's our existence, the one thing that never changes, that is what we're investigating, the one underlying reality that we actually are, I am. That is, if it's a peaceful state, I am in a peaceful state. If it's an agitated state, I am in an agitated state. I am is what is common to all states. I am is what shines throughout waking, throughout dream, and throughout sleep. So I am alone is the reality. I am means our own our own self-shining being, our own reality. Um, what we, that, uh, I, I am refers to our existence. I am this or I am that refers to our identity. But we cannot be anything other than I, so the only real identity is I am I. Um, uh, then he, he or she goes on to say, uh, uh, there doesn't seem to be anything like what text teachings describe. Anything that is described in any text 
falls short of what we are seeking. That is, what we are seeking is anivachaniya. That means it cannot be described. The texts themselves say it, it cannot be described. Yes, sometimes it's described, for example, as satchit ananda. Uh, pure being, pure awareness, pure happiness. But these are just descriptions. Until we actually experience ourselves as we actually are, such words like Satchitananda, Brahman, etc., these are just words, just ideas. We are not experiencing them as we actually are until we know ourselves as we actually are. So we, we should, and, and anything that is, any description, has to fall short because it is beyond it's beyond the power of thought or word to grasp so we we, we shouldn't be looking for something that we've seen described in scriptures our only concern when we're attending to ourselves we should forget all scriptures forget all teachings that's only teaching we should remember that we should attend to ourselves that is if we that is Bhagavan has given us many useful works like Oludu Napadu, Padesh Undia, um, uh, Nana, Anma Vidday, Arunacha Studi Panchikam, Ekatma Panchikam, all these works. These are very useful pointers. But in order to go within, we have to leave all these texts behind. We can't take the texts within us when we go within because ultimately these texts are just thoughts, ideas. And we need, we're trying to go to the source from which the original idea, the original thought, namely ego, is arising. So we need to, the, 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 the teachings and the texts, all the, the Upanishads and the Bhagavad Gita, Brahma Sutra, all these texts and the commentaries on them and all of Bhagavan's works, they all have one aim and one aim alone, to turn our attention back to ourselves. So long as we're turning our attention back to ourselves, that we are following all the texts correctly. But if we're thinking about the texts, we are we are not going within. We're going again, going out. So the the texts are there to remind. When we come out, the texts are very useful reminders that we have to go back within. But we shouldn't be uh, thinking about the texts and what they describe in the text when we're trying to go within, because what is described in the text ultimately it's all just words and thoughts. They those words and thoughts are pointing to the underlying reality, which is our self. So to know that, we need to turn our entire attention within. So if any thought about uh, arises, or this is, doesn't seem to be anything like what the texts or the teachings describe, that is just a thought. We need to, th to whom is this thought? We need to turn our attention back towards ourselves, the one to whom that thought appears. Whatever thought may arise, we need to turn our attention back with it in, back towards ourselves, the one to whom it uh, appears. This is the only way to go deeper and deeper and deeper within. And we need to continue this practice until we go so deep within that we lose ourselves in our own reality. Um, uh, then the next uh, sentence is, plus when the mind starts, there isn't a clarity, but I know who am I. Yes, because we haven't gone within deep enough. But the more we practice, the more we will begin to discern that clarity, that sparana, which is the clarity of our own awareness, that though we are still identified with this body, there's under, an, under, an underlying understanding and clarity, but this is this 
a body is just an adjunct, but what I actually am is I am alone. But such clarity comes only by patient and persistent practice. We are not looking for immediate results. That is, nothing dramatic is going to happen when we attend to ourselves. To the extent to which we attend to ourselves, the eye that is looking for anything to happen will subside. So, but the whole practice of self-investigation is nothing but subsiding deeper and deeper and deeper within ourselves, sinking within, or it's sometimes often in English it's translated as diving within, but I think sinking within is a better word because diving sounds a bit too active. That is, the more we attend to ourselves, the more we sink within. And we need to sink and sink and sink until we lose ourselves in the very depth of our own being. Then only we'll be swallowed by the by the infinite clarity that is pure awareness. Um, and then the next sentence, uh, the, uh, the, he or she says, uh, the identification from body-mind to I am doesn't transfer. Again, we, we, we shouldn't be looking for instant results. You look at the snake, if it still seems to be a snake, you go on looking at it more and more carefully until you see what it actually is. Until you see that it's a, a, a rope, you have to continue looking at it. So just because we don't, um, we don't uh, seem to gain instant self-realization, we shouldn't give up. We need to continue the practice until we uh, eventually, the identification with body and mind will subside and the pure I am alone will remain. But until then, we've got to persevere in the practice. And But one thing, some people say, how can you know this works if you, have, if you haven't yourself attained it? If we are genuinely persevering in this practice, we experience greater and greater clarity. So we can see the efficacy of, of what Bhagavan is teaching us, even before we lose ourselves entirely. So if we, if we are genuinely practicing this, almost imperceptibly, the inner clarity will increase. And we will be left in, there'll be no room in our mind for any doubt that this is the correct path, that we're moving in the, we may not have reached our goal, but we're moving in the correct direction. And the correct direction is only to sink deeper and deeper and deeper within, to be as we actually are. Then the next question is, is this because that no-thing place or experience after the I-thought dissolves isn't the place of I am? If the I-thought had actually dissolved, what remains is only the pure I am. Because the I-thought is the adjunct mixed awareness, I am this body. Uh, uh, when that dissolves, what remains is only the underlying reality, which is I am. But if, if, if that is dissolved permanently, then there'll be no dissatisfaction. There'll be no one uh, uh, who will come back with any complaint. So these questions are asked from the perspective of someone who is practicing, as we are all practicing. And we just have to go on pursuing the practice until finally there's no one left to pursue anything. So until we know what, until we lose ourselves in ourselves, we need to continue investigating ourselves. Lose ourselves in ourselves means lose this false identification called ego 
in our own being, in our own reality, I am. Um, uh, uh, the next sentence is, it seems to me, if you observe and put your attention on the I thought, then thoughts stop, and there is peace, but nothing else seems to happen. <laughs> if nothing happens, that's good. We're not looking for any happening. But one thing we need to avoid happening is falling asleep or falling into a state of layer. What is but what the yogis call Kavala uh, Nivikalpa Samadhi, we don't want that to happen. Because if we, that happens, we stay in that state until we come out of it. We can't make any further progress. So we're not looking for any happening. What we're investigating is our being. Our being is not something that happens, it's what always is. So we shouldn't be looking for anything to happen. We simply attend to our being, to I am, more and more and more. The more we attend to it, the more we subside and sink deep into it. And when we sink deep enough, when we subside deep enough, we will dissolve completely in that. And then there'll be no one to come back to say, it seems to me that the I thought has disappeared. <laughs> because they never. when we lose ourselves in that clarity, but it's our own real nature, the pure awareness that we actually are, it will be clear that there never was any I thought in the first place. There never was anyone doing any sadhana or seeking anything. Um, and then the final sentence is, this doesn't seem to translate into knowing who am I. Give me clarity of who am so of who I am. So am I misunderstanding the practice? Um, I don't think this person who asked these questions, I don't think they're they're completely misunderstanding the practice. They're moving in the right direction, but that is obviously to to put self-investigation into practice, we need to understand what it is we're practicing. At least we need a basic understanding. But what we are to attend to is nothing other than ourselves. We are not to be concerned about what appears or disappears. We are only looking, trying to attend to our own being. We need to understand this clearly. Um, but there's a limit to how much we can understand the practice simply from reading. The real clarity comes from the practice itself, because the deeper we go within, the more we are, we are bathing in the inner clarity, we are tapping into the inner clarity. So the nature of the practice becomes clearer and clearer to us as we put it into practice. And the clearer it becomes, the deeper we're able to go in the practice. So we shouldn't expect to suddenly attain the infinite clarity of our own real nature. Why we don't attain that immediately? Because we are not yet ready to surrender ourselves completely. We're not yet ready to let go. Why do we come out again? Because we still have a liking to come out. So we need to go on persevering this practice until the liking to come out again diminishes and the love to remain within, to be as we actually are, increases to such an extent that it finally swallows entirely any residual liking to come outwards. The liking to come outwards is what Bhagavan describes as Vishaya Vasanas. That is the, it's the nature of ego to have such Vishaya Vasanas. The very nature of ego is to always come outwards. We can overcome that ego nature only by patient and persistent practice. How long is it going to take? Doesn't matter. 
so long as we are trying to be self-attentive, we are moving in the right direction. So long as we're moving in the right direction, that's all that matters. Whether it's going to, whether we're going to lose ourselves in that clarity the next moment, or whether we, it's going to take a hundred lifetimes, what does it matter? All I want to know is who am I here and now? So long as we are so one-pointed in our practice, we the thoughts of whether it's going to take a long time, why hasn't it happened yet? These are all thoughts that occur only to the outward going mind. If we're going within, we will not be concerned about all these things. What does it matter how long it takes? Even if it takes, however long it may take, I always am. That's, that's one thing that is certain. And all I need to know is who am I? By holding on to that I am more and more and more and more until we... Uh, sink and dissolve in it completely. So, because we don't get instant, instant results, because nothing seems to happen, we shouldn't, we shouldn't be disheartened. If anything is happening, then we should be worried, because if something is happening, whatever happens is something other than ourselves. That means our attention has gone away from ourselves. So, who is it? Whatever may be happening, to whom does this happening appear? We should turn our attention back to ourselves. So we need to be very, very single-minded in this practice to attend to ourself and ourself alone. And it doesn't matter how many times our attention comes out, how many other thoughts appear, to whom do they all appear? We have to turn our attention back to ourselves more and more and more. Om Namo Bhagavate Sri Ramanaya. So I hope that's sufficient to get the to get all the other questions um, flowing in. Thank you, Michael. I think that was very, very comprehensive. That was really wonderful. Um, the next uh, sort of comment and question is that if Michael does not mind, could he speak about his own spiritual journey, his influences, and people who have inspired him? <laughs> Personal stories may be nice to hear, but they're not very helpful. We have all been attracted here by Bhagavan and his teachings. Let Bhagavan and his teachings inspire us. Um, supposing I tell some story about myself, yeah, the, that story is just words. The real spiritual journey is, is leaving thoughts and words behind, leaving this identification. I am this person. I have such and such a story. How I came to Bhagavan, all these things, they're all very nice when we come out and we think about, and it, we, thinking about these things may increase our love for Bhagavan, but it's missing the point. The main point is, what is the whole point of Bhagavan's teaching is that we should go with him more and more and more, and thereby leave our identification with this. So what does it matter? What, what is Michael's uh, journey? Michael is a, just an unreal appearance, just something that, appear, uh, uh, something that appears in a dream. Who am I? That is what we're here to investigate. We are seeking our own reality. So we need to give up interest in the person we seem to be. If we are, if we are taking interest in other people, we're missing the point. We are seeking not to know the person we seem to be. We're seeking to know the reality that we actually are by leaving, by separating ourselves from this person. 
So it is. It, I don't think talking about spiritual experiences and anything that can be described in words is not the right thing because the, what we are seeking is that which is beyond all words. So words can never capture what we actually are. So I'm sorry if that's a disappointing answer, but it's. A, I think it's a more useful answer. I could tell you stories and stories and stories. How does that benefit you or me? It's no use at all. We, our aim is to separate ourselves from this person. Uh, give up our identification with this person by seeking to know our own reality. That should we need to be single-minded in that aim. The next question is: Can Michael please explain what the difference is between Ajatavada and Vivartavada, and how this relates to Bhagwan's teachings? <clears throat> Vivarta means false appearance, illusory appearance. So this is the the basic teaching of Advaita, that is, Advaita says, ekam eva advaitiyam, there's one only without a second. And who is that one? Tattvamasi, you are that. But our experience seems to be contrary to that. How can you say I alone am? There's so many other things. There's this, there's this PC in front of me, there's the, all the objects in this room, there's the world outside, there are cars, there are cities, there are... Um, wars and famines and um, uh, sciences and history and philosophy and so there's so many things. How can you say there's only one thing? So, in order to be only that is, in order to explain the appearance of manyness, Advaita says the philosophy of Advaita that is says. It's all vivata. It's all just an illusory appearance. What actually exists is only one. Anything more than one is just an appearance. Otherwise, if you if you accept the reality of anything other than our own being, then you have duality. You've got the subject and the object. So all phenomena, not only all phenomena, the knower of all phenomena, in other words, all objects and the subject that knows those objects are a false appearance. That is the basic teaching of Advaita. So if all Bhagavan, here's where Bhagavan's teachings come in. I mean, Bhagavan agrees that yes, it's all just an illusory appearance. But Bhagavan asks us the important question. Yes, it's all an illusory appearance. But there cannot be an illusory appearance without something to which an appearance means it must appear to something. So to whom does it all appear? That is what we need to investigate. This illusory appearance appears only to us as ego. When we don't rise as ego, as in sleep, there's no illusory appearance. Only in waking and dream there's all this illusory appearance. There's the appearance of multiplicity. So it, it, what is the difference between sleep on the one hand and waking and dream on the other hand? In sleep, we remain just as we are. In waking and dream, we rise as ego, the false awareness I am this body. And it's only in the view of ego that all this uh, uh, illusory appearance uh, appears. So that it seems to exist only in the view of ego. So to, 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 the solution to this illusory appearance is to investigate ourselves, the one to whom it appears. If we get rid of ego, we get rid of the illusory appearance, because the illusory appearance appears only in the view of ego. 
That's why Bhagavan says, for example, in verse 26 of Aludanapadu, if ego comes into existence, everything comes into existence. Why? Because everything exists only in the view of ego. If ego doesn't exist, everything doesn't exist. What Bhagavan says here, this may seem to be extremely radical, but it's actually our experience. In waking and dream, ego has come into existence. So many other things seem to exist. In sleep, ego disappears. Ego ceases to exist. Everything else ceases to exist along with it. That's our own experience. Um, and then Bhagavan says, Ego itself is everything. But because all these other things, they just like the, the dream is nothing other than a dreamer. It, the, the dreamer sees itself as the dream. The dream has no existence other than the dreamer. That is, everything that we see existing in a dream seems to exist only in the view of ourself, the dreamer. So it's borrowing its semi existence from the semi existence of ourself as the dreamer. So ultimately, the whole dream is nothing but the dreamer. The dreamer is ego. So all this is a dream, and it's all nothing other than ego. In the Upanishads, it is said, all this is Brahman. But Bhagavan here tells us, all this is ego. So is Bhagavan contradicting the Upanishads? No. But Bhagavan is, is adding an important uh, step in the reasoning process. How is everything Brahman? Everything is ego. And if ego investigates itself, it will find itself to be Brahman. So ultimately, everything is Brahman. But the important, the missing link that, that Bhagavan has made clear is ego. It's only when we rise as ego that everything else seems to exist. That's why in verse 24 of Uludhunaptu, he says, in between. Because ego is the go-between, between Satchit and the appearance of all other things. So that's why he says in verse 26, ego itself is everything. And then he concludes that verse by saying, Adalal Yadu Iduendru Nadale Ovadal Therefore, know that investigating what this is is giving up everything. Investigating what this is means investigating what this ego is. So why is investigating ego giving up everything? Because as he said in the previous verse, if we investigate ego, it will disappear, it will take flight. Tedinal autumpidicum. If sought, it takes flight. That means if ego seeks its own reality, it will subside and dissolve back in its source. When ego ceases to exist, everything else ceases to exist because everything else seems to exist only in the view of ego. So if you all of this is vibhata, it's all an illusory appearance. If, but it appears only to us as ego. If we as ego investigate ourselves, we will subside and dissolve back in our source. And when we investigate ourselves, we will find that what we actually are is immutable. We, now it seems to us that we have risen as ego. 
But when we know ourselves as we actually are, we will know that we have never risen as ego. Because ego itself is a part of that vivata, it's a part of a false appearance. Ego seems to exist only in the view of ego, not in the view of our real nature. Our real nature, Atmasarupa, doesn't know any ego, because our real nature is just the pure I am. It's only in the view of ego, I jump mixed awareness, I am this body, but ego seems to exist. So when ego knows its own reality, it loses itself in its own reality, and then it will be clear But ego has never come into existence, and therefore nothing else has come into existence. So the ultimate truth is ajata. According to ajata, there's not even vivata. There's no false appearance at all. Nothing. Ajata means uh, non-birth. It impl- uh, the, the, the canonical verse, but um, but uh, in, in which. Uh, the truth of ajata is expressed, is a verse that appears in several of the minor Upanishads, but most famously in Mandukya Karika. Um, whether Godapada was the original author of this, and it later came in some Upanishads, or whether it's a verse he took from Upanishads, we don't know. But anyway, the verse is, it begins, uh, na nirodo, there's no cessation or destruction. Why is there no destruction? Nacha utpati, there's no arising. Vibhata uh, is arising. First ego rises and everything else rises in the view of ego. But according to ajata, there's no rising at all, and therefore there's no destruction. So from the perspective of ego, we can talk about mananasa, eradication of ego, the destruction of the mind. We, that's true from the perspective of ego, because in the view of ego, ego exists, so it can, it, can, it can seek its own destruction. But from in the view of, uh, of our real nature, what we actually are, there never was any ego to be, never, no ego ever existed in the first place, so there's nothing to be destroyed. So when ego is destroyed, we will know nothing has either been destroyed or has, because nothing had ever come into existence in the first place. So the ultimate truth, Ajata, is that there's, there's neither ego nor any illusory appearance. So the, the Ajata is the Paramatika Satya, the ultimate truth. The, but Bhagavan made clear, Ajata is not a teaching. Ajata cannot be a teaching because in Ajata there, there, there's no multiplicity, no appearance at all. There's neither a teacher nor anyone to be taught, nor any bondage, nor any problem. There's nothing. So uh, we are told that Ajata is the final truth. But if you go to a doctor with some serious, supposing you've got uh, some serious malady, and you go to a doctor, And he said, oh, there's no problems, no diseases, no, uh, no heart disease, no cancer, there's nothing. You're, that doc, you're, you're not going to go back to that doctor again because he's a pretty useless doctor. So Bhagavan does not teach Ajata. He tells us that Ajata is the ultimate truth. But what he teaches is Vivartavada because that is a practical... If, if you don't acknowledge the problem, that is, from Bhagavan's point of view, there's no ego, no problem at all. But he comes down to our level to accept the problem. That's why he begins Uludhanapadu, Nam Ulahum. Kandalal. That means because we see the world, 
Does that mean Bhagavan sees the world? No, Bhagavan sees only himself, but he comes down to our level. Why do we see the world? Because we've risen as ego. So Bhagavan is, is acknowledging Vibhata. Uh, uh, He's acknowledging that there is an illusory appearance. Ultimately, that illusory appearance, there's no such thing at all, but it, we have to acknowledge that. And the, the purest form of Vibhata-vada, the form of Vibhata-vada that Bhagavan taught, is what is called uh, Drishti Shishti Vada. Drishti Shishti Vada says all this false appearance appears only in the view of the seer. So there's no there's no Shishti creation independent of our perception of it. It's own that that is just like a dream. The dream doesn't exist except in our except in our uh, the, the view of the dreamer. It's, so, it's only when the dreamer sees it that it seems to exist. It has no existence independent. Likewise, the, the pure form of Vivatavada taught by Bhagavan is what is called Drishti Shishtivada. There is also a more diluted form of Vivatavada, but is often taught in uh, Advaitic texts, which is Shishti Drishtivada. They accept the world exists there, but we're just not seeing it as it is. But that's a very diluted and unsatisfactory uh, explanation. That is given, as Bhagavan said, the ultimate truth is Ajata. For those on the spiritual path, the most useful teaching is Drishti Shishtivada. For those who are not ready to accept Drishti Shishivada, how can all this vast world exist only in my view? What about all the history? What about all the geography? What about all the science? What about all the uh, politics and economics and all these things? How can this all be only my dream? If we are not willing to accept it's our dream, then there's a more diluted form of Advaita in which is said, yes, all this is created um, when Brahman, in association with its power of Maya, it is called Ishwara, and Ishwara has created all this, and he's created so many jivas, and you're one of those jivas, and you're seeing this, but you're not seeing it as it actually is, because what it actually is, is all Brahman, so you need to see it all as Brahman. This is a diluted form of Advaita, a less practical form of Advaita. Bhagavan is all about practice. So what Bhagavan teaches us is the most practical teachings. That's why Bhagavan, Bhagavan's primary teachings are Drishti Shishti Vada. For those who weren't ready to grasp, even Bhagavan sometimes came down to the level of uh, Shishti uh, Drishti, saying, accepting that the creation exists independent. For example, if someone came to Bhagavan and said, Bhagavan, there are so many problems in this world. I want to start reforming the world. I want to rectify all these problems. Bhagavan used to say, he who has created this world knows how to take care of it. Leave it to him. Surrender yourself to him. Let him take care of it all. There Bhagavan is talking from the Shrishti Drishti perspective because he's acknowledging that God has created the world. That's not his, his deeper teaching. That is what's suited to those people whose minds are very outward going. But for those who truly want to follow Bhagavan's path, what he has taught is Drishti Shishti. But all this appears only in your view. Yes, it's all an illusory appearance. To whom is it? It's only in your view. So know yourself and your, the problem is solved. I, I hope that's a, a clear and adequate answer to that question.
Yes, so thank you very much, Michael. I just wanted to, uh, um, because we spoke about this last time as well, and I just uh, had a sort of a question comment, um, which I mentioned to somebody else. Um, somewhere in one of Bhagwan's teachings, uh, or, or rather one of his conversations, I think there was somebody, you know, um, people were sort of breaking coconuts over his head and that cold water was going down him. And I think the comment in translation was that, you know, you know that if this is the uh, sort of this idea of Advaita, you know, that uh, even at a sort of practical everyday level, you know, um, sort of he's not going to, you know, the body is not going to feel anything, you know, is there any cold and all that? And of course, this is not the case. I mean, you know, the, um, there is a practical element in life. Yes, um, um, sort of nothing ultimately exists, yeah. But you do still have to navigate so that you don't fall into a ditch you know, or, yeah. or you or, or whatever the body or whatever. Yeah. And um, one way in which this sort of thing is cashed out, and I'm not sure that Bhagwan says it, but because Shankara and so on, they drew so heavily through uh, their teachers on the Buddhists here, this thing of a chitta matra, that sort of this thing of consciousness only, which uh, actually mm -hmm. is called the self in some of the, the traditions, sort of, you know, the sort of yeah. pure awareness, but um, it's this thing of ultimate and conventional truth, which is not something which exists as such, um, it, because conventional is not something which really exists. It's not a srishti at yeah. all, yeah. but it is this uh, sort of a notion that um, it, it's a bit like physics in a way, you know, that you've got the Newtonian and you've got the quantum. This is one sort of way of looking at it, you know, yeah. that that uh, sort of uh, at a practical level, which we do live, uh, you know, and it, it, see, it is illusory, it is everything. Uh, yet in the illusion, uh, there is a navigation of that practical level. Yeah. And uh, this is a kind of a conventional truth. So, you know, if you have cancer, well, you could be like, say, like Bhagwan and not do anything. But normally, for all intents and purposes, we will go and see a doctor and so on and so forth. So there is a kind of a conventionality. I mean, um, um, it's like Newtonian physics. It is three-dimensional. Uh, it's a three-dimensional illusion. And we do have to navigate it if we don't want to keep on getting hurt. And, you know, I mean, uh, the body is not going to end up getting hurt. So it's just this thing of conventional and ultimate truth, which kind of ties in with the Ajatabada in a way. Yes, Ajata uh, is the ultimate truth. Uh, exactly. Um, so, the, so this is that uh, kind uh, of... Uh, Paramatika Satya. Yeah, so um, this, yeah. And in fact, they call it Paramartha Satya, and then they call it uh, Vyavahara Satya. Yes, and it's yes. simply uh, to avoid this confusion that, uh, you know, um, sort of, this is this is an illusion completely. Yes. But that illusion is a practical illusion, so to yes. speak. You know. Yes. Yes. I think it was just you know the convention and ultimate truth is often sort of helpful sometimes. Yeah. I yeah. feel that that is. Um, I believe uh, the first person to express it in these terms was Nagarjuna. I don't exactly know what terms he used, but he talked about two levels of uh, of reality. In Advaita, they, some forms of Advaita talk about three levels. They talk about the Paramatika Satya, the Vivaharika Satya, and the Pratibhasika Satya. Pratibhasika Satya means uh, seeming reality. And what they say is, um, Ajata is the Paramatika Satya, waking is Vivaharika Satya, and dream is... Um, is uh, is a low, a still lower order of reality. It is Pratibhasika uh, um, Satya. That is from the perspective of uh, Shristi Drishti. But from the perspective of Bhagavan's teachings, 
there's no such distinction because according to Bhagavan, there's no distinction between waking and dream. So Viviharika Satya, what is called Viviharika Satya, which means transactional reality, we can say. It, I mean, the reality is, for, for our normal day-to-day -day purposes, it seems to be reality, but that is just Pratibhasika Satya. It's just a seeming reality. It's no more real than a dream. But Bhagavan often used to say this. Bhagavan said, in, in a dream, uh, dream, dream food satisfies dream hunger, dream water satisfies dream thirst. And there's no, con there's no contradiction. For example, if I'm at a dwaitin, then I shouldn't go to a doctor, supposing I believe that. That is, that is a misunderstanding of dwaita, because who, who is it? What is diseased? It's the body that's diseased. Who is it who goes to the doctor? It's the body that goes to the doctor. So that's all on the level of Viviharika. Our aim is not, we, we don't, we cannot know our real nature simply by avoiding going to doctors when the body is in need of a doctor. The aim in Advaita is to separate ourselves from the identification with this body. So, so long as we're dreaming, we need to behave in that dream in an appropriate manner. Supposing you're dreaming and you think, oh, this is all my dream. So you start telling other people, oh, you don't really exist. You only exist in my view. In your dream, most people are going, not going to be very happy with you. They're going to give you a beating and so show you how real they are. So we, we need to be practical in our application. That is, the truth we are taught is to turn our attention within. We shouldn't try and misapply the Advaitic teachings in action. That's why in, there's a, I think, verse 39 of Uludunaptu Anubandham, which Bhagavan translated from one of the minor works of Shankara, I think a work called Tatvupadesha or something to that effect. Uh, Bhagavan begins by saying, I mean, it's a translation, but Bhagavan fully endorses this, always have a dwaiter in the heart never put a dwaiter into action, because putting a dwaiter into action is meaningless, because action is possible only in dwaiter, only in duality. Only when we're aware of duality do we seem to be doing actions. Michael, <clears throat> yes. essentially you're teaching this is Sudha. I understand that, that Bhagavan says that let the body go through whatever it's supposed to be. <laughs> you know, you want to be a doctor, you want to be, you know, freedom fighter, whatever. Let it let it go through. But do a self-investigation. I have one follow-up question. Can, can I just say one thing? Whether we let it or not, it's going to go through what it is. It's going to go <laughs> yeah. through. Yes, yes. Yeah. So, Michael, I do have my, my primary question is, based upon what you had, um, uh, you know, spoken in the first half of this meeting, yeah. it is about self-investigation you did mention one thing you said just be and I, I don't know the exact word that you use basically sleep while self-investigation you're you're sinking deeper and deeper avoid sleep or something like that yes that's where I, I i know i can pray to bhagwan and say please help please help but it is sneaking it is really sneaking can you give us some any 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 your thoughts on how in the world do I avoid this sleep? I mean, I'm not trying to avoid it, just sneaks in. I don't, I'm not even aware during self-investigation or anytime I listen to anything to do with sinking, 
I just naturally the sleep is sneaking, if you know what I mean. Oh, yeah, I understand exactly. This is a problem, for, a potential problem for all of us. That is, there is a very important word that is often used in Advaita, particularly when talking about the practice. That word is pramada. Pramada means um, inattentiveness or negligence. So, um, when we are trying, that is, pramada is basically the opposite of self-attentiveness. Uh, it, it, though that all pramada means is negligence or inattentiveness, but it implies in this context self-negligence, not attending to ourselves, not being sufficiently self-attentive. So our aim in self-investigation is to be self-attentive. The enemy of self-attentiveness is pramada, is, 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 is negligence. We're trying to attend to ourselves. And we, we, we forget what we're doing and we begin to think other things. Pramada can take two forms. It can, it can take the form of thoughts, that is, either our attention can slip away from ourselves towards other things, or the other form of pramada is sleep. If, if we continue attending to ourselves, but then lose our hold on the self-attentiveness without getting carried away by thoughts, we fall into sleep. The only way to remain balanced, that is, this is an explanation that is sometimes given of the word samadhi, which is a word that has many different, I mean, there's a word that is used in, but to which many different meanings are attributed. But one of the Advaitic explanations of samadhi is it's samadhi. It's the state in which D, the mind, is in a state of summer, of equilibrium, of balance. That What that means is it's in a state of self-attentiveness, which is balanced, which is, in which we neither for, slip into thoughts, nor do we slip into sleep or layer. So we need to, we need to be aware that pramada can take two forms. It can either take the form of thoughts, and, which carry us away, or it can take the form of uh, sleep. The only way to avoid both of these forms of pramada is to cling to self-attentiveness more and more. And of course, we, so long as we're at the stage of practice, we will be succumbing to pramada time and time again. Sometimes we may get carried away by thought. Sometimes we may uh, slip into sleep. We shouldn't worry about sleep because we all need to sleep. Uh, that, it, that it, because of the activity of the body and mind, we all need to spend some time in sleep. But there's a limit to how much we can sleep. So if you're practicing self-attentiveness, self when you are tired, you're liable to fall into sleep. If you fall asleep, sleep well. When you wake up and are feeling refreshed, resume your self-investigation. Uh, we, we need not worry about sleep because we can't sleep forever. What we need to be avoid is other forms of, of manolaya. Because if, for example, if you're a yogi and you become very adept in going into nivikalpa samadhi, which is a type of manolaya, you can remain in that state for even years together. Bhagavan used to tell the story of a yogi on the banks of the Ganga who was so adept in going into Nivikalpa Samadhi, he would go into that state for prolonged periods of time. And um, uh, uh, 
one day when he woke up after a long period in Nevikalpa Samadhi, he asked his disciple to bring, he said he was thirsty and he asked his disciple to bring water from a nearby Ganga. So the disciple went to fetch the water. By the time the disciple had come back, the yogi had gone back into his Nivikalpa Samadhi. And that time he went into Nivikalpa Samadhi so deeply, he remained in that state for 300 years. When he woke up after 300 years, the first thing he did was to ask angrily, where's my water? Um, and Bhagavan sometimes when he told this story, he would, he would, uh, he would, um, uh, add to it. He said, uh, in those 300 years, the Ganga had changed course. So the Ganga was now several miles away. The village, nearby village, had also moved to, to be nearer the river. So a big jungle had grown up, and there was no one, no one knew the yogi was there, immersed in Samadhi in the middle of the jungle. But what the, the important point Bhagavan said is, what this illustrates is, even the most the last thought in his mind before he went into Nivakalpa Samadhi was the first thought that arose in his mind when he woke up. That means even the most superficial thought is not is not removed by staying in Manolaya for even 300 years. So when the even most superficial thought is not removed, what about all the vasanas? Everyone said Manolaya is is of no use. Just like when we fall asleep, we don't wake up with less vasanas. When the ego rises again, it rises all the same vasanas. So manolaya is not a way to destroy vasanas. Vasanas are our, vishaya vasanas are our inclination to go outwards. We, we can weaken them own how they how Vishaya Vasanas have become strong. They have no strength of their own. They become strong to the extent to which we allow ourselves to be swayed by them. So the more we allow ourselves to be swayed by a particular Vasana, the stronger that Vasana becomes. If we want to weaken the Vasanas, we need to avoid being swayed by them. So it's only in waking and dream that we can weaken and eventually destroy the Vishaya Vasanas. The most effective way to destroy all Vishaya Vasanas is to practice self-attentiveness, because the Vishaya Vasanas is the inclination to attend to Vishayas, anything other than ourselves. By clinging to self-attentiveness, we are, in, we are strengthening the Sat Vasana, the inclination just to hold on to our being, and we are weak, thereby weakening the Vishaya Vasanas. So this can be achieved only in waking and dream. It cannot be achieved in sleep or Nivakalpa Samadhi or anything. So Bhagavan always used to warn people who were inclined towards the practice of yoga to be very careful to avoid going into uh, layer because that's what because the aim in yoga is yoga's chitta vritti nirodaha. Yoga is the uh, is to restrain or curb or stop the mental activity. If you stop mental activity, what happens? You go into layer. The difference between yoga and Bhagavan's path, yoga, they are merely trying to stop the thoughts. In Bhagavan's path, we're trying to know who am I. To the extent to which we attend to ourselves, we are thereby withdrawing our attention with thoughts from thoughts, and therefore the thoughts will subside automatically because thoughts cannot exist if we don't attend to them. So the aim of yoga is achieved by 
self-investigation. But the aim of self-investigation is not achieved by yoga, because yoga is only stopping thoughts. If thoughts stop, the result is layer. The, the nasa can be brought about only by, um, by uh, self-attentiveness. This is why in Upadesha India, in verse 13, Bhagavan says, Odakum, that is the, the dissolution of the mind, is of two types, Laya and Nasa. That which is uh, subsided in Laya, that which dissolved in Laya, will rise again. If its form dies, it will not rise again. Then in the next verse, he says, the mind which is uh, restrained or curbed by, the, by breath restraint, only if that mind is sent on the or-vari will its form die. Or-vari is a very nice word in Tamil. It has a double meaning. That is, superficially, people take it, or-vari means oru-vari, one path. But it has a deeper meaning, because or also means to investigate or know. It's a verb. So or-vari means the investigating path. It means the or-um-vari the path of investigation. So what Bhagavan is referring to as Aurvari is the path of self-investigation. Because if this is the only means by which the mind will die. Because if if you're not attending to yourself, you're attending to something else. So attending to something else cannot be a means to know what you actually are. If you want to see something, you have to look at it. If you want to see what we actually are, we need to look at ourselves. If we want to know what we actually are, we need to attend to ourselves. So it's only by this path of investigation that the mind can be destroyed. That's why Bhagavan says only when the mind is sent, only when the mind is sent on that one path will its form die. So um uh if the if the layer that comes when we're practicing self-attentiveness, if it is just ordinary layer, that means sleep, it's okay. If, if you're tired, you will sleep. Sleep well. When you wake up, uh, use the freshness and alertness of mind to try to attend to yourself again. So, But so long as we're practicing, we should try to hold on to self-attentiveness so firmly, but we don't slip either into thought or into layer. We need to remain balanced in between. I, I, was that an adequate answer, adequately clear answer, Sudha? Yes, dear Michael, absolutely. So <clears throat> what I'm hearing, and thank you, you know, every day I listen, it's deeper and deeper from, from what I'm understanding, perseverance and patience. When you slip in, come out, continue, slip in, come out, continue. Yes. Just is what I'm hearing. Yes. Like Bhagavan says about thoughts in the sixth paragraph of Nana, however many thoughts arise, so what? If a thought arises, to whom does it arise? To whom does it appear? To me. So we turn our attention back to ourselves. Like it's not the sleep. thought, I'm sorry, it's not the thought, it's the non-thought that actually... I know, I know. I said, well, I'm just <laughs> applying that. I, that is, that's what he says about thought. The same applies to sleep. Let sleep come any number of times. Can, when you wake up, turn your attention back to yourself. Perfect. And because today there's I a limit to how much we can sleep. You may be able to stay, if you're an adept yogi, you may be able to stay 300 years in... Um, 
uh, in Nivikalpa Samadhi. But unfortunately, none of us can sleep much more than eight no. hours a day. If you try and sleep more, you'll just be dreaming. Right, right. <laughs> no, thank you. Right. So let us not be satisfied with this temporary sleep. The sleep we are seeking is the eternal sleep of pure awareness. It is sometimes called wakeful sleep because it is the state in which we are uh, uh, asleep to all, to all phenomena and awake to our real nature. That is the sleep we are seeking. So let us persevere in this practice until we attain that eternally wakeful sleep of pure awareness. Thank you, dear Michael. Namo Ramnaya. And even to say until we attain that is not quite true. Until we lose ourselves in that. Until we are swallowed by that. The next question uh, is, uh, I would like to, to get some guidance on the following from Michael. During practice of Atma Vichara and daily life, how do we get a constant reminder that all the worldly life is Maya? It feels like we need to be constantly in the being, like a witness, not fall into the trap of samsara. I see that mind is pulled into a dirty pond instead of enjoying being a witness at the bank of the pond. Any practical advice would be helpful. Thank you, Bhagavan, for, for, for putting me into the path of Atma Vichara. Um, the only way to succeed in this path is to persevere in the practice. It, it does help to, that is, studying and thinking about Bhagavan's teachings, reading his teachings repeatedly, thinking about his teachings repeatedly, is a great aid because it encourages us to put it into practice more and more. But um, so if at all we want any aid in this path, the greatest aid is the, available to us in the form of Bhagavan's teachings, because his teachings are constantly dinning into us the need to turn our attention within. But nothing is a substitute for practice. Practice is all important. That's what Bhagavan's teachings are all about. Why did Bhagavan... Um, appear in this world, it was, to, it was to teach us what is the practical implication of all of Vedanta, of all of Advaita, that there are so many volumes, volumes, volumes have been written on Advaita philosophy. But is Advaita just a nice philosophy? No, it's a practical science. It's a, 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 the practice is what is all important. So Bhagavan's teachings are all focused on practice. So the practice is most important, but te his teachings will encourage us to put it into practice, but there's no substitute for it. Um, that's one thing. There was something more. I've just forgotten now exactly what the wording of the question was. Shalini, can you remind me? Because there was something else I wanted to say. Yes. So it's during the practice of Atma Vichara and daily life, how do we get a constant reminder that all of worldly life is Maya? It feels like we need to be constantly in the being, like a witness, and not fall into the trap of sansara. I see the mind is pulled into a dirty pond instead of enjoying being a witness at the bank of the pond. Any practical advice would be helpful. Thank you, Bhagavan, for putting me in, onto the path of Atma Vichara. Okay. 
Um, regarding this word witness, we need to be careful of this word witness because it is often misinterpreted, misunderstood. Why it is said, but we have a witness, because now we are identified with this body and mind as ourself. But what we actually are is, as he, that is, ego, what ego is, is the, that which, though it identifies itself with all these, it's that which knows all these. So the witness, in the sense of that which knows everything, is ego. So to, to, to it, it is, that is part of the process in order to identify what it is we have to attend to. One of the, one of the prakriyas that is taught in uh, Advaita is what is called um, uh, Drik Drisya Viveka. That is, we need to distinguish the seer from the seen, the knower from the known. So what all objects, all phenomena are objects known by us. We are not any of these objects. We are not this body. We are not this prana. We are not this mind in the sense of the other thoughts that constitute the mind. We are not the intellect. We are not the will. We are that which knows all these. We are the drick or the witness. We are the knower of all these. So the term witness is a term that is used to help us to distinguish ourselves as the knower from everything that is known. What we, what we are to investigate is not anything that is known, but only the witness of what is knowing everything, the, the witness that is knowing everything. So being the witness doesn't mean just what, uh, watching the world go by or watching the thoughts go by. What is it, the, 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 our aim is to investigate who am I, the one who is witnessing all this? So our aim is to turn our attention away from phenomena back towards ourselves. But many people think that to be the witness, you just have to observe everything. Observing everything, that is, that is not Atma Vichara, that is Anatma Vichara, because you're attending to things other than yourself. So we, Bhagavan, Bhagavan, of course, used this term witness in certain contexts, but it's not a term he used a lot. And when he talked about witness, he was, he was using the term, we need to understand the purpose with which he uses the term witness. It is to point out that we are not, we are not any of these things that appear. We are that which knows all these things. And it's that which knows all these things that needs to be investigated. So we need to, uh, 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 some people misinterpret and say, oh, you just have to be the witness, witness whatever is happening. No, the, the aim of that term witness is what we need to investigate is ourself, a witness of all these things, the one to whom all these things appear, as Bhagavan often put it. Um, so our aim is to attend to ourselves more and more and more. When our attention comes outwards, reflecting on Bhagavan's teachings, helps to encourage us to turn our attention back within. So thinking about Bhagavan's teaching can help us to remind us that all this is Maya. But merely thinking all this is Maya is not going to get us very far. The, the aim of understanding all this is Maya is, since it is all Maya, it is none of it is worth attending to. There is only one thing that is worthy of our attention, namely ourself. That is the whole point. So Bhagavan's teachings will encourage us more and more to attend to ourselves. But we shouldn't be just reading the teaching because we're missing the point. 
we should be we should rebury Bhagavan's teachings in order to encourage us to attend to ourselves. That is what we should that is our aim. So but the teachings are useful to the extent to which they encourage us to attend to ourselves. They are not a substitute for that, they are they are support for that. The crucial thing is being self-attentive. Sadakalamum manate atma vil vaitiripatikutan atma vicharamendrupaya. The term atma vichara refers only to the to always keeping our mind fixed in ourselves. That is the important thing. That is what Bhagavan's teachings are all about. Thank you. Thank you, Michael. Right. Thank you for clarifying on the yeah. witness. Uh, it's easy to get misled or misinterpreted. Yes, yes, yes. It's a, like, like so many words. The words may have a certain aim, but it, it's very easy for us to miss the aim and to read another meaning into them. So that's why teaching in words will always be imperfect. That is, Bhagavan has given us the most useful teachings possible in words, but even his words can be misinterpreted because such is the nature of the mind. That's why Bhagavan said the ultimate teaching is not the teaching in words, but the teaching in silence, and that is ever going on in our heart. Bhagavan's teachings are ever shining silently in our heart as our own being, I am. So if we want to, if we want to study Bhagavan's silent teachings, that means be self-attentive. So his teachings in words are only a support to put us in touch with the silent teachings that are ever going on in our heart. Because only from those silent teachings will we get the real deep inner clarity. Because both that what Bhagavan calls the silent teaching is nothing but the clarity of our own being, I am. Thank the you. self-shining clarity of our own being. Thank you. And uh, I would like to also thank you for uh, the contribution to the Path of Sri Ramana by Sadhu Om's new edition. Yeah. It is so much beautiful, so much uh, so much yeah. clarity. Thank well, you. Well, I haven't contributed a lot to it because so many other demands <laughs> on my time, but I have, I know. I've helped to, to a slight extent. When, when I've, I've been like a consultant. When it, I've been, Kumar has been asking, seeking clarification now and then. But yeah, um, Thank you. It's, it's I wish I could have done more, but it's to to <laughs> translate such a book is a huge feat because oh. um, it's it's not at all, it, it's a very very deep uh, and subtle subject, and um, Tamil and English are very different languages, so it's very 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 challenging to produce a, an adequate translation. But this is much better than previous translation. Yes, but yes. still, as all as with any in translation, there's always plenty of room for improvement. Yeah, I think it definitely gives a lot of um, clarifications on uh, the practical advice uh, on yeah. the Atma Chara from Sadhu Om. Yes. Yeah, thank you. Om yeah. Namo Ramanaya. Thank yeah. you. And for anyone who isn't aware of what we're talking about, this is the, the book, The Path of Sri Ramana by Sadhu Om, which is one of the most, well, probably the most useful book uh, as a clear 
introduction to Bhagavan's teachings and it and and a very very clear exposition of how to put Bhagavan's teachings into practice. The path is Sri Ramana by Sadhuam. The original is in Tamil, Sri Ramana Vari. Um, but a, a new English translation has come out and is available on Amazon. Can I put that link uh, in uh, Amazon link in the chat? Uh, yeah, yeah, certainly, for anyone certainly. interested. Okay, anyone who... Thank you. Yeah, thank you so much. Uh, the next question is: Is something other than the self necessary for self to realize itself as Advaita? No, nothing other than. <laughs> um, uh, there's a verse in Guru Kavai in which Bhagavan says. Um uh uh tane uh um tane upayam tane no tane upayam tane upayam uh that is the, the oneself alone is the means and oneself alone is the the goal. There is uh, no difference at all. So the path and Bhagavan often used to say. If the path were of a different nature to the goal, it couldn't lead to a goal. So since our, go since our goal is to know ourselves as we actually are, the path can only be to investigate ourselves, to try to know ourselves, can, can be the only means. So we, to follow this path, we need nothing other than ourselves. We ourselves are the path, we ourselves are the goal. As ego, we have a problem. Uh, as our real nature, we have a goal. And going from ego to our real nature is possible only by clinging to our own, to ourself, to our own being. That is, ego is the false awareness, I am this body. In order to separate ourselves from the body, we need to cling to I am. So I am is both the path and the goal. That's what Bhagavan means there when he says oneself alone is the goal, oneself alone is the, oneself alone is the path, oneself alone is the goal. I have heard of cases that accelerated quickly and attained self-realization by a guru. Is it possible without a guru? Um, <laughs> What do we mean by a guru? People think, uh, well, people have all sorts of ideas about what is a guru. Guru, according to Bhagavan, guru is our own reality. That is, Bhagavan often used, well, for example, in, in the 12th paragraph of Nana, Bhagavan says, Kadavalam uh, guruvum unmail verala. God and guru uh, are in truth not different. Um, God and Guru are our own real nature. So he often used to say, uh, God, Guru, and Self are all one and the same. So what we actually are, that is God, that is Guru. Since we couldn't exist without what we actually are, we, Guru is absolutely essential. How is our own being the Guru? Because our own being is such it. It is not only pure being, it is also pure awareness. And it is that pure awareness that shines in our heart as I am, that gives us the light to know all of this. 
and it is that same, and that such it is not only pure being and pure um, pure awareness and pure happiness, such it and under, it is also pure love. So Bhagavan, who is Guru, our own real nature, he loves us as himself. He doesn't see us as other than himself. So his, the infinite love that he has for us as himself is what works in our life as his grace. But, but that is, grace does everything without ever doing anything. As Bhagavan says in the 15th paragraph of Nana, all the five divine functions, creation, sustenance, destruction, uh, veiling, and grace, all of these happen by Isan Sanidana Visesha Matratal, by the mere special nature of the presence of God. Presence means being. So just by being as he actually, Bhagavan doesn't do anything, but by being as he actually is, he does everything. So without the grace of Guru, to know oneself would be impossible, because the grace of Guru is itself that clarity that we are seeking. So um, to, nobody has ever succeeded in this path without a Guru. Uh, but Guru is not a person. In the case of Bhagavan, for example, there was no person, there was no Guru didn't appear in human form in Bhagavan's life. But Guru appeared, that is, Bhagavan says in the first verse of Aranacha Ashtakam, from a very young age, before he knew anything else, in other words, from the smallest childhood, Aranacha was shining in his mind as something very very, very big, very great. So he, that, that thought of Aranachala, even though he didn't know what Aranachala was, he thought Aranachala is the greatest thing, and that was shiny in his mind. So that's why Bhagavan sings in Aranachala Aksharam Rai. Um, it's verse 19. Kutra mutra rutene gunamai panital guru vuru vayole Aranachala. That means Aranachala, who shine as the form of Guru. Uh, then he explains what is the function of Guru. Kutram mutru arutu. Uh, that is uh, completely kutram mutrum arutu. Completely destroying all my defects. Well, he doesn't even say my defects. Destroying complete defects completely. Uh, the, the root of all defects is ego. So the defects can be can destroyed completely only when their root is destroyed. So that implies destroying ego. Ene gunamai panital, making me as guna. Guna means good quality. It implies making me one endowed with all good qualities. The ultimate good quality is satguna, the state of just being as we actually are. Uh, al, al means take charge of me. So the guru, guru's work, guru is not just some person outside who gives some teachings, who tells you do this, don't do that. Guru is that light of awareness that is always shining in our heart, um, uh, but is uh, but is drawing us back within, because our minds are outward going. It is in the case of most of us, it is necessary for Guru to appear in human form. In our case, Guru has appeared in human form as Bhagavan to give us the teachings to tell us to turn within. So Bhagavan has fulfilled the function of the outward form of Guru. 
that Bhagavan as a person, I mean Ramana Maharshi, has put, but Bhagavan is ever shining in our heart as the true Guru. So Guru is absolutely necessary, but we do not need any Guru other than Bhagavan, because he's ever present in our heart. When his body was dying and people were weeping, saying, oh, don't go away, don't leave us, he, he said, where am I to go? What did he mean by that? We can interpret that at different levels. In one level, Bhagavan is ever-present in Tiruvannamalai because he is Aranachala himself. He can't go anywhere. But in a deeper level, he is, he is the I am in each and every one. He's the reality of each and every one of us. So how can he ever leave us? How can he ever go away from us? Can our own being go away somewhere? No, obviously not. So Bhagavan is always there. In most traditions, when the, when the Guru dies, they appoint a successor. They have what is called a, 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 a parampara, a succession of Gurus. Bhagavan never, um, instead of appointing his successor, Bhagavan pointed us all at his own Guru, Aranachala. So Aranachala is never going to be missing, at least not in our lifetime. So Aranachala, or not in many lifetimes ahead. So Aranachala is always there. And Bhagavan is always there in the form of his teachings. So we don't need any guru other than Bhagavan. If, if, another, if any other guru was necessary, Bhagavan would have created a, a, a line of succession. Nowadays, there are some would-be gurus who say, I, I'm in the Ramana Maharshi lineage. Anyone who talks about Ramana Maharshi lineage does not know what they are talking about. There was no Ramana Maharshi lineage. Anyone who makes such claims has not understood Bhagavan at all. If anyone was qualified to be a successor of Bhagavan, it is Murugana. But when, if after Bhagavan left the body, when people came to Murugana and said, Oh, Swami, will you be my guru? He would get very angry. He would say, Why do you need any guru? You've got Bhagavan. Bhagavan is a guru for all of us. Bhagavan is the guru of all gurus. We don't need any guru other than Bhagavan. So, what Bhagavan taught, revealed to us about the nature of guru is far deeper and subtler than what most people understand guru to be. And in a verse in Guru Vachakobai, Bhagavan says, the, the Guru who gives do's and don'ts is both Brahma and Yama. Brahma, because Brahma is the creator. So if he if a guru gives you do's and don'ts, he's making you do more and more karmas or avoiding karma. Both are the same. They're trying to do this or to do that, both is karma. Um, and doing more karma leads to more birth, that's the work of Brahma, and birth leads to death, that's the work of Yama. That's why Bhagavan said that Guru who gives do's and don'ts is, the, is both Brahma and Yama. The true Guru tells you there's nothing to do, just be. Be as you are, because we're already that. So how to be as we are, how to be as we are, how to just be, that is the path Bhagavan taught us. By allowing our attention to go outward, we're rising as ego. By holding on to our being, we subside and remain as we actually are. So Bhagavan's path is not a path of doing, it's a path of being. The more we attend to ourselves, the more we subside in our being. So Atmavichara is not a doing, but or an action, it is a cessation of doing, a cessation of action. It is a, it is a subsidence and cessation of the doer of action, namely ego.
So no other guru is ever necessary. If we've been fortunate to come to Bhagavan, he is the final guru, the ultimate guru. If we, if we are looking for anything that we cannot get from Bhagavan, then we are not ready fit for the spiritual path because we're looking for something outside ourselves. Whereas the real guru will never point to anything outside, they point only inside. The real guru will not say, come to me, I will save you. He will say, you don't need saving, you're saved already, see yourself, and you will see that you're mukti uh, nilay. Uh, this is the eternal state of liberation. Your own natural state is ever liberated. You're always liberated. You seem to be in bondage because you're looking outside. Look at yourself and you'll see you're ever liberated. 